Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 1st, 2023, a Wednesday in the Bay Area. I'm in San Francisco. My guest is in Palo Alto, and we're talking America. Uh, yesterday, we talked America, too, uh, with a young man, Ryan Bernstein, who uh, traveled around America 27,000 miles to write his 50 states of mind. And we're going back, though, not to the America of 2023, but to the America of the 1830s, uh, a world entirely different from our own. There weren't, of course, 50 states at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. It was an America, of course, of Andrew Jackson, Jacksonian democracy, uh, an America of Nate Turner's slave rebellion, an America of Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America, an America, of course, that de Tocqueville visited. Uh, we talked about Tocqueville with Ryan Bernstein, an America of Nathaniel Hawthorne in terms of books, and of Thomas Cole in terms of how we think of looking at America. Cole created our, our vision of America, and that is the America we're talking of, the America of the 1830s, with my guest. Uh, Alexander Nemirov, Nemirov. Uh, he, had, uh, he teaches at Stanford University, which explains why he's talking to us from Palo Alto. He has a new book out. Uh, it's called The Forest, A Fable of America in the 1830s, and he's joining us today. Uh, Alex, um, do you call it a fable because you couldn't be there in contrast with the America of the 2020s? I think I call it a fable because it's not a history. I think I'm trying to preempt the, a reader's expectation, perhaps within academy um, culture more than anywhere else, that uh, I would be authoritative and, as it were, truthful about the past I describe. I'm interested more in uh, a mix of fiction and fact that nonetheless aims at a more truthful portrayal or a, a more felt portrayal of what life may have been like then. Uh, you say a more felt portrayal. Yeah. Um, is there, is there an, um, a contrast between feeling and fact? Are you suggesting that if you were too factual, if you're too much of a, an academic historian, you of course are a, a professor in the arts and humanities, you have a broad role at Stanford, that historians miss the real picture that they don't feel? Well, I don't know if I would put it that strongly. I think, of course, many great historians, their work, their questions they ask proceed from a profound font of feeling, but um, nonetheless, they would commit to the fray in terms of making a claim, an argument uh, based on empirical data to which uh, they take a, a back seat ultimately as they portray things or claim to portray things the way they were. I think I'm interested in a more, um, if you like, truthfully subjective account of things that would 
um, be felt in the sense of trying to portray lived experience then, uh, both in its kind of um, physical material qualities, what were the smells and the sounds like, et cetera, but also maybe in its more invisible and supernatural qualities too, uh, all relying heavily on language, my language, to try to summon all that world into being. Uh, if anything, you're, you're anything uh, but uh, narrow, uh, obviously, Alex. Um, your last two books are entirely different. One on Helen Frankenthaler, the uh, 1950s uh, New York artist, and then another one on the great American uh, photographer, Lewis Hine. Why did you choose this project? It's very different from... Mm. Uh, everything you've done before, but at the same time, everything you've done before is different from the previous project. Are you defiantly eclectic? Do you always like to find something that's totally different from your previous uh, book and, and project? I, I don't think I'm defiantly eclectic because that would imply that I'm trying to prove something, I suppose. I think I'm more curious you know, curious about the past ever since I was a little boy, curious about art ever since I was a little boy. And it seems a shame to be, um, you know, limited to a so-called specialization. So although, you know, the commonality between the three books you've just mentioned is the United States. And so in a broad sense, I guess you could say I do have a specialization. I, I really don't like to think of myself as an expert or a specialist, but just as someone who is very curious. And I try to portray that for my students and, and, and to my readers as well. Uh, one of the nice reviews of um, your book on uh, uh, Fran Thaler uh, suggests that uh, it, it, it Fierce Poise reads like one of Helen's paintings, do you want this new book, The Forest, to read like the America of the 1830s? Is that one of the goals? I think the writing style, if that's the word, is my own. However, I take your point. I do feel just as with writing about Frankenthaler, it's hard not to think of the artist as your kind of mentor or advisor in terms of how it is you're supposed to portray their pictures, you know, that Helen in her, the kind of fugitive um, qualities of her impressions or emotions as she gives them voice on the canvas as it were, uh, is meant to be the model for how I would write about her. So she gives me the method by which I describe her pictures and her life even I think uh, in the case of the forest, it would be something like, uh, I feel a profound connection with that time, uh, Hawthorne, for example. Um, but I don't know that I'm trying to write in a Hawthorne fashion. I think one could say, however, that I am, you know, do I see myself as in a as, uh, as related to those writers and as caring about those writers and believing in those, a writer like Hawthorne um, and, and the, the pertinence of that writer now? Yes, I do. 
You are, above all else, a, a professor. I mean, you, you know, you're lucky enough to be eclectic. You can choose any project you like, but you're at the top of the tree when it comes to academia at the top university, one of the top universities in the world. But above all else, you're a historian of art. Um, and I know that Thomas Cole um, and his image of the America of the 1830s figures importantly in this narrative. How did the people, the artists of the 1830s, Alex, how did they represent America? Well, in the case of Cole, I think it's well known that he had serious concerns about progressive America, which in his time would mean Jacksonian America and the America of the Axe, uh, A-X-E. And, uh, and portrayed his reservations, which were religious in nature to in, on his uh, canvases. At the same time, as many scholars have beautifully established, he was himself, Cole, rolling with the times and, you know, uh, making these paintings for the very people who were progressives themselves, you know, up and coming um, rich mercantile figures and so on. They became his patrons because those were the only patrons for what he had to say. So. You could, you could say Cole is an exemplary figure in the sense that there is no position that is pure. You know, everyone is in the midst of a shift, uh, both nationally and in their own way of being in the world. And the fascination of the pictures, as well as the stories, etc., is uh, to do with that, that contradictoriness. Alex, you got a nice review in the Wall Street Journal, but one criticism suggests that it was a bit too earnest, at least for the, the taste of the reviewer, Jackson Arne. Uh, uh, and actually, the review was great. It was the only sort of afterthought. Um, maybe there's not a lot of humor at Stanford. Maybe it's a bit serious down there. Uh, what was funny about the 1830s? Was there any humor there? Uh, yes, I'm sure it was. I, I think... Um... Right, I don't. I don't know how funny Stanford is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, re, I'm reputed to be the funniest person in my family by my daughters and my wife, but, but, but that's I suppose up for contention. Are they laughing with you or at you? Oh, a little bit of both, I would say. I think uh, I, I won't care to give you the percentages on which is which, but I my kids only laugh at me. So I don't think. Most yeah. Yeah. I know. Kids. I know the feeling. Yeah. One tries. To How be, old are your kids, by the way? Uh, 20 and 18. Yeah. Oh, similar age to mine. And what about your wife? Does she laugh with you or at you? Uh, both, you know, but yeah, we, we have fun together. We think we're funny, but one another, but uh, I think the earnest point is interesting because um. That was the key in, in which I wrote the book. Uh, I, I was thinking after I read the review, wow, did I, is it because I wrote the book kind of sitting in bed during COVID, um, just, you know, um, kind of absorbed in this dream world of the 1830s, uh, writing a little bit every day for a number of months at a time and therefore as it were, the earnestness of the moment kind of infused itself into me. I don't think so. I think I was, uh, the, I'm, I am earnest. And, uh, you know, uh, 
it seemed to me that was the mood of it. Um, though it's funny, in the writing of it, I wouldn't have called m myself earnest. So maybe the reviewer's word isn't quite right. I would have called myself absorbed in it. And if it, if that absorption, you know, made me, I don't know, um, miss out on the, the, the humor of the times, I suppose, uh, you know, I, su I suppose that was just, uh, that was a blind spot for me, but I, I, uh, I love the absorption of it and I love the singular mood of it. Uh, Alex, I'm talking to you, as I said, from San Francisco, just up the peninsula from you. Um, California wasn't, of course, settled in the 1830s. And when one thinks of the late 1840s in San Francisco, at least, there was a lot of fun and games, lots of sex and other no sorts of naughty things. Was there something particularly earnest about the 30s, this second awakening, the religious fervor? Um, or is America itself such a, a serious endeavor, such a, a business in um, doing good and realizing heaven on earth that it's always been a rather serious endeavor? Well, Melville said, you know, Melville was just an adolescent in the 30s, but he but was writing, of course, uh, Moby Dick just in the gold rush era uh, that, you know, um, there's something very um, frail and fugitive about happiness and something enduring about tragedy. And he doesn't claim to like that fact, but he just says it is a fact. And he says sometimes the tragic even achieves in his phrase an archangelic grandeur. And uh, I suppose the epic of the forest in America is is a it has that is a tragic one, yeah. and um, I don't know if it has to do with the '30s or the '40s. I, I don't know, Andrew, why the '30s popped into my head a number of years ago as the decade I would write about. It could have been the '40s, but it just seemed intuitively. I work intuitively that the '30s were the right decade for me, without really knowing at that moment of inception a number of years ago, why I just felt um, it was right. And may, I don't, I don't think it was because it was any more or less serious a decade than the forties or more or less frivolous a decade. I'm sure seriousness and fr frivolity in American culture as our own moment would, would easily attest our commonalities of the daily round uh, in any, on any, day, any decade. Um, but uh, maybe I was drawn to the way in the 1830s, you know, maybe a kind of last vestige of pre-capitalist uh, religiosity and seriousness, uh, gravity, uh, metaphysical power of the kind you see in Hawthorne, who would be Melville's mentor in a way. Um, is still very present, whereas in the 40s and 50s, it starts to become, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe all that gets smoothed out. Uh, and and some of the, the epic erratic force of that seriousness gets um, drained away. 
Is there something tragic in a way, maybe about the 1830s or certainly your representation in the forest, this fable? Was the forest destroyed or was the beginning of the destruction of the forest? Of course, there's, there's a strong environmental quality to the title and the narrative and the whole ideal and idea of America. Was there something tragic? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, sure. Like the the um, the book is written, uh, <clears throat> I think, to that key, you know, to the shadow of the forest and the silence of the forest and what once was the forest. But it's not really an environmentalist book at all. It's more of a storybook about <clears throat> different people, sometimes artists, sometimes poets, sometimes just ordinary people who nonetheless thought like artists and poets, uh, all of whom had some kind of visionary relation to um, the, the majesty of the world around them for which uh, the forest in my book is, is a metaphor. Uh, I wanted at the start of this book when I began thinking about it, something that would be the uh, overarching presence in the book the governing presence that wouldn't necessarily have to appear on every page, something equivalent to say the V2 rocket in Pynchon's um, Gravity's Rainbow that would, you know, be the protagonist, uh, even if every story doesn't explicitly concern it. And, you know, that's, that's what I was going for. To put it another way to, I was, go I'm going for something that, doesn't want to um, abate and kind of drain itself in the sheer purpose of making a point in our America now, but that can be a book that can live on and be picked up by anyone who's interested in a, in a good story and moreover in a story about our relation to the mystery of being alive as that's embodied in trees and forests and our paradoxical desire to uh, remove them from our sight and in some way also recognize their the ongoing kind of quiet, solemn claim they make upon us. Alex, some of your fellow historians will pick this book up and tick their boxes as they always do, those rather humorless historians and say, where are the women? Where are the people of color? What about slavery? This was of course America of Sarah Margaret Fuller and uh, Fanny Campbell in terms of women, as I mentioned earlier, the America of Nate Turler's rebellion and America of astonishingly awful slavery. Do you sidestep those issues? Do you avoid ticking those boxes off in the book or is that unavoidable in terms of your portrayal of the America of the 1830s? Well, there are four whole um, episodes about Nat Turner. There's a very long and beautiful episode about Fanny Kemble. Um, you know, there are many women in, in it. Um, and uh, there's one of my favorite parts is to do with, uh, well, the very last episode is called Two Sisters at the Mountain House. And then the, the postscript is about a little girl. Um, 
but also Harriet Tubman is the center of one of my favorite mm. episodes in the book called Harriet of the Stars. Can we get, you know, I know you're not trying to sidestep it. I was half joking, but is your book an attempt to somehow escape our preoccupation with writing about America in terms of MLK's arc of justice? I don't know about that. I think, uh, again, like there's nothing really defiant about the book. Um, I don't. I don't it's, think. Could you say it's defiantly undefiant? I, if you wanted, but I, I would say it was an incredibly peaceful, beautiful book to write. I was reading something that Van Gogh uh, said recently, or wrote. Wrote. I recently was reading something he wrote to his brother or his sis, one of his sisters, where he said, "I've chosen a life of active melancholy rather than despair." And I think that's right. You know, the book is, uh, in that sense, actively melancholy instead of despairing. And it's not angry. It's trying to create a space for the reader that is um, fully engaged with the world of um, injustice as an ongoing attribute of American culture and something that comes very hard uh, and direct to me in a number of ways, as I'm sure it does to anyone who lives here on a personal and national level. But it isn't about those things, you know. There's one episode in the book called The Drug of Distance, which I really like and which I'm actually speaking about later today in my class at Stanford. And uh, it's about two brothers, one of whom becomes a painter, one of whom is also artistically inclined, becomes a landscape architect. But the landscape architect suffers from uh, migraines and becomes a drug addict, uh, ultimately uh, using a form, using chloroform, which like medication in our own era is introduced to alleviate pain in the uh, in a medical situation but is widely is quickly and widely uh, abused in the world at large and ultimately this brother took his own life the drug of distance like my own brother died of uh, well he didn't die of drug abuse but he was a long time drug abuser who ultimately was killed in prison, I mean, I, I can talk the evil uh, in American culture probably pretty, I mean, with some, with some degree of wisdom. Um, I can do that, but I don't think it's the most profound thing I can do. So I think in this book, as in any book, could say the Frankenthaler book too, you know, where is the hope? Where is the possibility? Not in some BS politi politicians point of view, but in, in the point of view of moments on earth. Alex, uh, uh, one of the reviews I read, I think it was the Wall Street Journal one, compared the book to Edward Said's Orientalism, which of course is an angry book in its own way. Someone else, I think one of your other blurbers called it Sebaldian. Sibald, uh, everyone always refers to W.G. Sebald. Are there 
writers, sort of these truthfully subjective stylists, Siebold, Calvino, who inspired you, whose books that you've read that you're trying to emulate in one way or other? Mm. I think to me, I mean, it's a very flattering comparison whenever it's made, but to me, the Sebald connection feels closest to the truth and maybe in some way reading his books over the years has rubbed off on me and allowed me to do what I do or shown me a way to do what I do. But perhaps I protest too much, but I, I feel like the book is really still coming from my own mode of being. I was, you know, just that's taken years to find this kind of fruition. I'm 59 now, but one thing I think about is when I was five years old in the woods in Massachusetts one day, and uh, uh, I came upon the, this sort of pile of moldering boards and I, I lifted some of the boards up and a whole um, hive of bees came out from under these boards and one stung me behind the ear. I think this book is about being stung behind the ear, you know. Um, it's, it's living with that kind of experience, transmuting one's personal experience into a poetic language of one's own, uh, that all in defense of which one can only say it feels right within my lights. One of the other reviewers c compared the work to a, a Terence Malick movie. Um, do you feel that the book restricts you? I mean, you're obviously not a filmmaker, although conceivably someone could turn the forest into a movie uh, or into a series of photographs. It strikes me that the 1830s is perhaps the last moment before, uh, maybe I'm wrong here, the photography began to take over. It's a little a little while before the movies, but um, do, do you feel restricted by, by the book? Is, is there a, a cinematic quality or that you aspire to in your work? I think imagistic, yes. I think um, to create images in the mind of the reader, which I've always found to be among the most pleasing things a writer can do, uh, to take you to a place, transport a person. And about photography, you know, you're right. I mean, it's invented in the very late 1830s. And part of the poignancy of that decade then is that I'm describing people whom in most cases were never photographed, or if they were, it's after the time I'm talking about, though the book ends with a series of photographs, very mysterious photographs taken on a rooftop in Philadelphia in the 1850s by uh, a photographer who had been a novelist of the frontier in the 1830s. Uh, but I, I love the Malick comparison because, partly because I just love the movie, The Thin Red Line, uh, but also because yes, that kind of saturated image, whether it's in a movie or on the page is something I, try to find and how, how do you do that as a, as a writer try to find the, the saturated image i think um 
get away from abstractions as much as I can, lose my academic training, uh, read fiction exclusively instead of academic writing. When I, you know, unless I need to really like learn about a particular topic, uh, you know, in a sort of empirical or and historical way. Um, and I would also say kind of relax my grip on what needs to happen and let the story tell itself to me and let that world tell itself to me, let it suggest itself to me in pictures. I, the, the Princeton press who published the book just asked me to write a little something about the book for their website. And one phrase I hit on that I think summarizes what I just said is um, the world is lifeless to the willful glance. Well, let's end, uh, Alex, um, with you taking us back to the 1830s. So uh, you've just written a book about it, a very creative, imaginative one. We don't have, as you suggested, photographs from it. We don't have certainly movies from it. We can imagine it, but you've done a lot of imagining. Tell, tell, tell my listeners and viewers about the 1830s. If they were suddenly transported back to the America of the 1830s, what would they see and feel and hear? It was a wooden world, as people say. You know, um, the bridges one crossed, the, the wheels of the carriage, and then the carriage itself, you know, made of different kinds of wood. We would have been sensitive to the different kinds of wood, different properties each kind of tree had for... Um, to be made into the hulls of ships or, um, or bridges or um, barrels or buckets or fences and so on. Um, that kind of sensitivity would have been ours. Um, I think the book portrays a world that is made equally of mud and stars too. I think um, it was a, you know, it was a kind of, I don't know how to say it without using the proverbial terms of a cultural historian trying to make the past sound gnarly and nasty. But, it, you know, it was, uh, I tried to portray the spittoons and the um, nameless abjection and lurid entertainments and grim prostitution and exploitation as well as you know, the lovely, uh, almost like um, unashamedly sentimental moments of beauty that um, came to people, um, you know, and that all of this makes a kind of rich composite that let's say equates to a reflection of the stars in a puddle of mud. And that, let's say that image takes the place of an argument, a claim, an attitude, uh, me as kind of imposing a statement about what 
should happen or what did happen or anything like that. I my my goal is to kind of hand it over to the reader and let them make of it what they will.